Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be diving now into worshiping our God through the study of his word in John chapter 17. Let me just pray and ask God's blessing on this time as we uh, worship him in this way. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us into your truth. Father, we long to catch a glimpse of you this morning in a way that would helpfully shape us into uh, more and more into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this time as we, that we spend in your word. Guide us into it. Show us what you want us to see there. And God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that that which we see would transform us, that that inner treasuring of you would find outward expression in a transformed life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are in John 17, and our plan is to wrap up our study through the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday, which is just a few weeks away. And so we're gobbling up some bigger chunks of John's Gospel not just to meet that deadline, but because it does kind of break out this way as we move through it. John chapter 17 is an interesting passage of Scripture for a whole host of reasons. Uh, You may be familiar with those verses in Hebrews 7, where the author of Hebrews says, speaking of Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And what the author of Hebrews is envisioning when he wrote those words was Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for his followers. He is uh, forever our high priest. And he, unlike the high priest, and the author of Hebrews is comparing him to human high priests who died, And that's why we have so many of them, or had so many of them. But Jesus fulfills that office perfectly and forever. And he's always at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And one of the things that chapter 17 of John's Gospel is it contains the words of an intercessory prayer. And so here we catch a glimpse into the sorts of things that Jesus says to the Father about you in heaven. Over the course of this prayer, Jesus will make five requests of the Father on behalf of his 11 remaining disciples and also those who would, later on, come to believe in the gospel through their testimony. That is, you and me. Jesus had you in view when he prayed this prayer in John 17, and he says so explicitly. So in our time together this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to briefly run through the five things that Jesus asks the Father on behalf of his followers. And then I want to wrap it up by looking at the basis of his appeal to the Father. In other words, to what does he attach his hopes that his requests will be granted? We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's briefly run through the five things that Jesus asks of the Father for you and for me, for our church, for his followers. The first thing that we find in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is a prayer for protection. In verse 11 and also 15 through 16, and by the way, Jesus, in laying out these five requests, it is not a linear prayer. He does not do one, two, three, four, five. They're kind of all woven together into one. 
And if you take one out, the whole thing kind of unravels. So you have to do a little bit of work to pick out the five things that he's uh, asking for. And so we'll kind of be bouncing all over the verse, all over the chapter. But in verse 11 and also 15 through 16, he says this. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the first thing we note that Jesus asks for his followers in his intercessory high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross is that his followers would be protected. In verse 11, which my translate interprets as keep them in your name, other translations render it protect them in your name. And the question is protect them from what? Jesus pointedly clarifies, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them or protect them from the evil one. In other words, Jesus did not ask the Father to protect his disciples from those things that we might expect to befall us in this fallen world, right? Things like disease, persecution, car accidents, threats, and so on. He doesn't pray that God would take us out of the world, but that he would protect us in the midst of the world from the evil one that he would guard our hearts against the attempts of the evil one to use those things to cause us to let go of Jesus. This is really the heart of his prayer for protection over his disciples. Not that you would take them out of the world, but that while they're here, you would protect them from the schemes of the enemy to take them away from me. The next thing that he asks of the Father on behalf of his disciples is a prayer for unity. In verse 11, a line we just read a moment ago, Jesus asks, so that they may be one as we are one. And then in verses 20 through 23, he follows up on this thought by saying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Uh, Words fail to describe the radical kind of oneness that Jesus is describing in these verses. They just simply don't have language to encapsulate the fullness of what Jesus is describing here. When Jesus asked that the, the fa- asked the Father that his church, his special people, would be one as he and the Father are one, even describing them as perfectly one, he is describing the radical, challenging kind of unity that is rooted in the absolute perfect oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know from the Bible that our God has existed eternally within the perfect community of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they are completely unified. There is not a hair width of difference in them in essence or divine will. 
And he prays that we would be one here at State Road Advent Christian Church as he and the Father are one. That is a very challenging prayer. And this is especially challenging in light of the culture in which we live, isn't it? Anybody who has spent a few minutes on Facebook will know that we do not live among a unified people, right? We live amongst a deeply broken, divided, fractured, and fractious people. And Jesus' hopes here are tied to something really important. In verse 21, Jesus asks that they all might be one so that... If, if you don't have that underlined and you are somebody who's in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I encourage you to underline the so that in verse 21, where it says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And in verse 23, he asks that they may become perfectly one so that, again, feel free to mark it up, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We see that the unity of the church is an important part of our church's witness. When Jesus asked that the church would be one so that the world would know and believe, he is saying that our oneness is an important proof of the realness of Christianity's claims to an unbelieving and skeptical world. And it's important because it is so unnatural. It is evidence of the supernatural. Our testimony as a church in the midst of this broken and divided world before the community we live in should be one of oneness and unity. In this, church, if in this, the church can point the surrounding culture toward a more excellent way. And more importantly, we can point them toward the way, Jesus Christ. Vance Havner once said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it nor by conforming to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And we do see Christians reacting to the culture in these two different ways, right? We see Christians who are moved to criticize the world. And we see Christians who are conforming to it. But there is a third way, which is a life that lives out Jesus the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And one of those proofs, one of those evidences that Jesus' Spirit is in a place, among a people, is that they are unified. Jesus was radically different in his own day, and he has called us to a radical oneness in the days we live in. Uh, I remember when I first came here and we preached on Uh, being a Christ imitator, that one of the sermons we preached on was on this very idea of unity. And it it struck me as I was just going through this portion of the service that, uh, of the high priestly prayer, that that would be something worth revisiting. We should come back to that again soon. But for right now, uh, we need to move on. A third thing that Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer for his followers is that they would be sanctified. Verse 17 through 19, he says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
<clears throat> sanctification is one of those kind of Christianese words that we don't really hear outside of the church very much. But what it means, uh, sancta, the root of there is sancta, uh, I don't know, something in Latin probably. <laughs> but it means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be separated off. The idea there is that we as a people are people who are made separate through our obedience. Sanctification is a process. When you become a Christian and you get saved, all of your sins are transferred to Jesus. All of his righteousness is transferred to you. That is called justification. That is a once and forever transaction, and it is one and done, and it is really the basis of our hope. We are justified because of what Jesus did. But then in every believer who is truly justified, what then follows is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we then begin the process of sanctification. We're not saved by sanctification, but sanctification is the proof and the product that we have truly been justified, that we grow in our love for righteousness, that we grow and become more and more like Jesus. The transformation that follows our being justified is called sanctification. And every true believer, every true convert who has truly put their trust in Jesus for salvation is brought along by degrees over time, not perfectly, but sincerely towards greater Christ-likeness. And that is, that is called sanctification. It is that process by which... Uh, our outward lives begin to change as an expression of a new inner reality. Over time, we become more and more like Jesus. And this is achieved in concert with the word of God. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the word is going to be an important part of how a believer is brought along in this process. And Jesus' prayer to the Father is that he would accomplish that. When was the last time that, we were, that you were in God's word? I don't say that as a gotcha question, but I, I just throw it out there as something to entertain. This is the sort of thing I believe that Jesus is saying at the right hand of the Father. His heart for you, what he is praying is, Father, sanctify Josh Tate in your word. Draw him into your word. Meet him there in a powerful way and use that to transform him. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we find those famous words. Maybe if you grew up in vacation Bible school and stuff, you may have memorized it at one time. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh my goodness, we need to be taught. We need to be rebuked. I need to be corrected. I need to be trained in righteousness. And where does that happen? It happens in God's word. And it's very important that we be spending time in God's word as followers of Jesus. Because an immoral church will have nothing to say to an immoral world. And the process by which we are brought along, the sanctification process, is tied to our times in God's word. Then we come to the fourth thing that Jesus prays over his disciples. In verse 13, he says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prayed that we would have joy. 
And a Christian's joy is very much tied to the things Jesus spoke while in the world. That's what he says here. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The reason why Jesus said the things he did was so that you would be filled with joy. Remember these words from our study last week on chapter 16. A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. These are the things that Jesus said while he was with the disciples so that they would have joy. I remember when I was in high school, I never, I was one of those students, I'm always baffled when I ask a student how they feel about school, and they're like, oh, I can't wait for school to start again. My jaw just about hits the floor. Because when I was a student coming up, I never wanted to be in school at all. There was not a single day that I was excited to go to school. That never once happened. And I can remember going to school. My, the only days of school that I thought were tolerable were like the last day before Christmas break or something, <laughs> where I would go and mostly there was going to be parties and cookies and then we could go to have break. But I can remember just sitting there in school, enduring it, and just looking at the clock. And I just knew that it, pretty soon the bell was going to ring and I was going to leave and I was going to be gone for like a whole few weeks for Christmas break. And that's the kind of hope Jesus is talking about. That's a very imperfect analogy. Of course, he uses a much better analogy, which is the pain of childbirth giving way to the joy of a new human being. But that's the joy we have now. Even our suffering has purpose. There is purpose in the suffering. There is joy because we're living in faith-filled anticipation of what this is all leading towards. And so Jesus asked the Father that we would have a supernatural joy rooted in faith, rooted in a belief in his promises, a joy that would not bob up and down like a cork with the waves of whatever comes that day but that we would have spiritual ballast enough to maintain even through the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs and the reversals and all of it, our joy would be centered on and focused upon, attached to the promises Jesus made in his word. And this is something sure and cer certain that you can tie your life off to. It is solid, it is fixed, it is weighty, it is real. And Jesus prayed that we would have, as his followers, that kind of joy. And then we come to the fifth and the last thing that he asks in his prayer on behalf of his followers. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What he's praying there is that his followers would endure to the end, that they persevere in the faith. 
He says, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me would be with me where I am, that they would see my glory in heaven. This language of verse 24, that the Father has given to Jesus his disciples, is reminiscent of what he said back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we read these words, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is going to the Father, and this last request of Jesus is that his disciples would persevere in the faith, and that they would not fall away, and that ultimately they would be where he is, that is in heaven. I believe that when Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and as he's interceding for you there at the, at the throne, that that is one of those things that he prays, that he intercedes about. I'm reminded of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion, even unto the day of Christ. So those are the five things that Jesus asks on behalf of his disciples. And I believe he's interceding for us about even now, that and other things besides. But what an interesting glimpse into the intercessory ministry of Jesus that continues even now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is praying that we would be protected from the schemes of the enemy. He is speaking to the Father about us being one. God, let the supernatural oneness, the reality that they are bonded together as a people be evident. May we be demonstrated and made visible through their oneness. He's praying that we would be sanctified, that we would be separated off from the world, that we would more and more by degrees truly love what he loves and stand opposed to what he stands against. He is praying that we would be filled with joy, and that we would persevere till the end. So those are the five requests that Jesus makes on behalf of his followers before he goes to the cross. And this is very poignant, I think, in light of what Jesus himself knew was coming for himself, personally. He prays protection for his followers, even as he surrenders himself to horrible violence arrest and beating and death on a cross. He steps out from underneath the protection, even as he prays protection for us. He prays that they would be one, just as he and the Father are one, and this on the eve of the day when he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? He prays for them fullness of joy, even as he, for the joy that was set before him, prepares to drink the bitter cup of the cross. He prays that they would be sanctified, even as he prepares to become sin in their place. And he prays that they would persevere, even as he goes to make such a miracle possible. This is, I think, a picture of the great transaction at the heart of Christianity. Jesus gave us what was by his rights, protection, oneness with the Father, fullness of joy, righteousness, and a forever hope. He gave us those things as a gift, and he took our place under God's wrath on the cross. This is the gospel. And Jesus is 
beautifully communicating the heart of the gospel, the heart of that transaction, as he prays for us those things that he is letting go of to take our place under God's wrath. But this prayer is more than a listing of requests, though. When, when you're cooking, I was thinking about this this week, when you're cooking a casserole, the final product is the main point, right? The casserole is a mixing and mingling of all of its ingredients. If you take tuna, macaroni, creamy soup, cheese, and fried onions, you mix them up and cook them all together, they will make a simple tuna casserole. All the flavors join together, the cheese melts, everything kind of comes together into a whole new flavor profile that's a mixing of all of it, and that's the point. You probably wouldn't guzzle down a can of creamy soup and then separately eat a chunk of tuna. That would be kind of gross. You wanted tuna casserole, not the separate ingredients. And in the same way, these five separate requests that Jesus makes are mixed and mingled together throughout this prayer, and it takes a bit of work to separate them out, but really the main point of this prayer is not achieved by separating them out. But really the main point of this prayer is the way that they synthesize and come together to make a big point about the Father's motivation in answering prayers. Over the course of our lives, we are asked for lots of things. Isn't it true? Honey, can you get me a glass of water? Would you please slow down? Sir, could you spare a little money? Anything helps. Son, would you please take the garbage out? Could you file these forms by the end of the day? Will you help me move on Saturday? The most dreaded question of all. And behind every request that you have ever received, there was a basis, a reason to hope that the request would be granted by the person asking it. The homeless person who begs you for some spare change bases that appeal on what? There is a basis, and that basis is the hope that you are a compassionate and generous and sympathetic person. A boss who makes a request of an employee bases that appeal on what? Their authority and the quid pro quo terms of your employment. You signed a contract that said you would do what I say. <laughs> That's the basis of that appeal. Someone who makes a request of their sweetheart might be basing that appeal on them being motivated by affection and a desire to please. And that brings us to this question. What is the Father's motivation in answering Jesus' requests in John 17? What is the basis on which Jesus hopes that these prayers would be answered? And I think this is a very helpful thing for us to see and understand because it can helpfully inform how we pray also. I, and there's nothing so jarring as when somebody asks something of you based on a faulty basis. Have, my brother and I, this is a really uh, awful story. Please don't think less of me. But we, <laughs> one of the things we used to like to do at Christmas time 
Don't do this, kids. This is horribly rude. I probably shouldn't even tell this story. We used to like to go up to, but I will anyway. We used to like to go up to people who clearly didn't look like they worked in a store. And we'd say, sir, you look like you work here. Where will we find this? Just to see the look on their face. Like you just see somebody in like a full-on business three-piece suit or something who just popped into Walmart to get something they need. You walk up to them and say, sir, you look like you work here. Where do we find the shoe department? And my brother Job and I just love to see the look on their face. <laughs> because it is so jarring. It's so weird. Like, I look like I work here. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Please don't ever do that. It's a horrible illustration. But isn't it jarring when somebody asks something of you based on a faulty understanding of what your motivations are? It is. And I think very often in my prayers, I misunderstand the Father so completely, and He's gracious. Don't get me wrong. In Romans 8:26 for the way it says, "We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express." God remembers you're made of dust. Don't get worried. God is not that kind of God. He's not a genie in a lamp where if you just don't ask him perfectly, just exactly the right way, then he doesn't do it. That's not how it works. But remember that the point of prayer is not to move God, but to move us into agreement with his will. We're the ones who are out of position. We're the ones who think wrongly. Prayer exists to bring us into agreement with the Father, not to bend the Father towards our program. And so one of the things that Jesus is teaching this is how in prayer we can line up our heart with a more satisfying, excellent way of thinking and feeling as we pray. And so he wants us to see very clearly what the Father's motivations are so that we can pray in the same way. I think this is why Jesus allowed this prayer to be eavesdropped on and recorded in our Bibles. He wants to teach us something about prayer. Here's the motivation. I won't beat around the bush anymore. The word glory or glorify is peppered liberally throughout this prayer. Over the past couple chapters, I've been asking you at times to go through and just underline stuff. And if you're in that habit, as you read through John 17 and you start underlining or highlighting the word glory or glorify, it occurs all over this prayer. Its use is especially concentrated toward the beginning of the prayer, and I think that's because it really does form the basis of Jesus' hopes in making his various petitions. For example, when Jesus prays for protection from the evil one on behalf of his disciples, the basis for that request is so that God would be glorified, that he would be shown to be an incredible shepherd who protects his flock. When he prays that his disciples would be filled with joy, it is so that God would be shown to be the all-satisfying, excellent, joyous thing that he is. In other words, Jesus prays what he prays for the disciples so that who he is and who the Father is would be clearly demonstrated in the supernatural provision of those things. Here's a, a list of some of the places we find glory in this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Glory. This is the motive. This is the basis on which Jesus rests his appeal. And I don't often pray things specifically that God would do them for his glory or for his namesake. Sometimes I do. But when I do, it just feels right. That's right. That's right. Probably no text in the Bible reveals the passion of God for his own glory more clearly and bluntly than Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. There in those verses, God says this, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's great motive is his glory. And to God, it is precious when we, to him when we ask him for things. One of the greatest things that you can bring to God in worship is a request. Because implied in the request is an admission of what? When we say, God, I need. (laughs) And I'm looking to you to provide. There is a confession there of our own dependence on him. There is an admission of our neediness. There is also a clear confession of who we think he is. That he is able and powerful and loving. He is a good father who gives good things. How little God is glorified in a church, in a people, in a Christian that makes no requests of him. Because that is also revealing. In bringing God our requests, we are confessing nothing less than our need for him. Uh, Growing up, I always had this sort of idea, I think it was a bit of a bad idea, perhaps, that asking things of God was less spiritual than other forms of prayer. And I think we find examples of all kinds of prayers in the Bible, but God is especially when we glorified when we ask things of him that line up with his will. When we ask things of him that he would have us be praying, he is very glorified. He loves to be asked for things. Just listen to a handful of things that Jesus said. In some of these verses we've highlighted in previous Sundays. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Brothers and sisters, God loves when his people ask him for things. He loves it. He delights in it. Proverbs 15, 8 says this, The prayer of the upright is his delight. He is so eager to hear prayers and respond to them that he says in Isaiah 65, 24, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and they, while they are still speaking, I will hear. In fact, he takes special steps to see to it that he is constantly presented with requests from his people. In Isaiah 62, 6-7, we read these words. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So God loves being asked for things so much that he appoints people to give him no rest. (laughs) What unusual language to find in the Bible. Give him no rest, but to remind the Lord and to never keep silent. And these truths all together should be very encouraging to us. Because this means that our God is the kind of God who loves to be asked for things. And why is that? Well, in Romans 11, 35 through 36, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Who has given a gift to him, that being God, that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God is all about glory. God is always the giver. That is who he loves to be. Notice the last line of that verse, to him be glory forever. It's more glorious to be the giver. And really, can God be anything but? Can God be anything but a giver? God has no need for anything. He is not the least bit needy. He is only ever satisfied and able to do whatever he wills. He can never be improved. He can never be helped. He is perfect. And therefore, he can never be given anything because he has need of nothing. And because he has no need, he can't be informed. He's all-knowing. He is so full that he can only ever always spill over as a blessing to us. He is glorified in prayer because it lines up with who he is as the the all-satisfying fount that overflows in blessings towards his people. And this brings us really in closing out our time together to communion. The glory of God is the overarching goal of all creation. In fact, it is the overarching goal of everything God does. From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the Bible makes it plain that the ultimate expression and exhibition of God's glory, the ultimate display of how excellent and awesome and good and worthy and beautiful he is, 
is found in the person of Jesus and his sacrificial death for sinners like us on the cross. In Jesus, God's glory was displayed perfectly. In Hebrews 1.3, it says this, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by, his, by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And when we come to the communion table and we take up together the bread and the cup, the bread which represents his broken body, the cup which represents his spilled blood, this is a celebration of God's glory. This is a time when we proclaim how awesome he is, how excellent he is, how good he is. And so what I'll invite you to do, uh, always when we take communion, I believe that in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul lays out the instructions for communion, the Bible makes it plain that this is just a natural time before taking the communion together that we as God's people draw before him in a time of prayer. Uh, Paul says not to take this in a manner unworthy. And by that he means not to take it in a disengaged way, just ritualistically. He also means not to take this before having repented of sins in our lives. If there are patterns of disobedience in our lives, I just would encourage you before you take communion, before we take communion together, that you confess those sins to God as you're aware of them, uh, that you ask for his help, that you pray that the, Jesus would be interceding to sanctify you and, and bring to fruition those things that he prayed in his high priestly prayer. And so right now, before we take communion together to wrap up our time, I just would encourage you to spend a moment in quiet prayer before the Lord if there's anything that you need to talk to him about. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.